I heard a story that uh, a number of years ago, an American was looking in an expensive jewellery store in Sydney, you know, the ones that we all walk straight past when we're in there. Uh, he decided to buy a large pink argyle diamond. The price was $30,000. He handed over his platinum American Express card. The sales assistant swiped it through the computer terminal. And at that moment, the computer froze. Nothing worked. She was thinking, what do I do? I'm in the middle of the biggest sale all month and the computer stops working. The customer leans over, looks at her screen and offers her a few tips. She punches some keys and then the computer's working again. She looked at him and she said, so you know a bit about computers, do you? Oh yeah, I know a little, he said with a smile. It was only at the end of the, the day, as she was looking through the receipts for the day, she realised that the buyer was Bill Gates, uh, the founder and CEO of Microsoft Corporation, one of the biggest computer companies in the world. Now, all of a sudden, that woman is feeling very silly. Uh, firstly, that she didn't recognise him, and then secondly, that she asked, so you know a bit about computers, do you? When the moment came to meet someone famous, she missed out because she didn't know who she was looking for. If she'd known, she would have been ready and not ask silly questions. <laughs> well, today's section of Luke is all about being ready. Being ready for the kingdom of God, the day of the Lord, the reign of the Messiah, and knowing what to look for. The Jews of Jesus' day, they were looking forward to that day. It would be a day of justice and vindication, a day of victory, a day when God would act and bring justice, a day when God's reign, his rule would be obvious, when the kingdom of God would begin. Now God had promised that that day was coming in the Old Testament, but the problem was recognising that day. What does it look like? Uh, and so in verse 20, the first verse there in the, the sheet in your, your outline, uh, that's the question that the Pharisees ask Jesus. Verse 20, when is the kingdom of God coming? You see, the Pharisees thought that the kingdom of God would come, God would arrive in history once everybody kept the law closely enough because they thought that God would reward them if they were obedient and he would restore his kingdom. And he would do it by sending his Messiah, his promised rescuer, and he would be a powerful military leader. That's what the Jews thought. And so they hoped that when this Messiah came, he would, he would defeat the Romans and he would rule on King David's throne again and Israel would once again be in charge. Now, when that's what you are expecting, it's no wonder that you don't see the one that God has sent, the real Messiah. It's no wonder that you don't see the, the man who came preaching and healing the sick rather than swinging a sword. It's no wonder that you miss the one who comes casting out demons rather than leading an army. And that's what Jesus says that they've done. They've, they've missed recognising Jesus. Uh, notice how he answers in verse 20. The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. 
Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Now, within doesn't... Jesus doesn't mean inside each of you individually. He means among you, in the midst of you. In other words, while they were looking everywhere for signs, the kingdom of God was already walking and talking among them. The kingdom of God was Jesus himself. He was there and they'd missed him. Now, what do we mean by the kingdom of God? Uh, If you're after a definition, here's, here's one. The kingdom of God is the time and the place and the people where God's rule is seen. The kingdom of God is the time and the place and the people where the rule of God is seen. Now, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is among you, he means look at me and you will see all of those things happening. Uh, In in Jesus' miracles and his healing and his teaching and his behaviour, all of those things are pointing to God, to the fact that God rules as king, that he rules over creation, he rules over sickness, he rules over death, over Satan, over evil and sin. Jesus says the kingdom of God is among you. Here I am. But it's not quite as simple as that. Answering the question, what's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God was just then. The kingdom of God began in the life of Jesus. But the kingdom of God is also now. Jesus returned to heaven and he rules everything from heaven, seated at God's right hand. He is in charge. He is the king. God's kingdom is, it's real. But God's rule is... It's not so obvious. God's rule is is quiet and subtle and it's easy to miss. In Jesus' place of his physical presence with us, he, he sent his Holy Spirit who lives with us and who rules over our lives, who rules in his church. And so God's kingdom now is seen in his people and in his church. And he gives us the task of building his kingdom. And sometimes we're not so good at reflecting and living the kingdom as we should be. And so many people today miss recognising God's King Jesus, recognising his kingdom. They miss seeing the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who lives today in the lives of his followers, Christians. Have you recognised Jesus as your King, your Saviour, your your Lord? If you have recognised Jesus, is your life reflecting him? When other people look at you, are they seeing the Kingdom of God? Would they look at your life and say, the Kingdom of God is among us? That person is an example of someone where Jesus is king. Is that what people would say about you? The kingdom of God was then, when Jesus walked the earth. The kingdom of God exists now in the lives of people who live with Jesus as their king. But there's more. There's more to the kingdom of God than then and now. A time is coming when God's reign will be seen in an even more obvious way 
than today. Uh, it'll be more than we saw it in the life of Jesus. Uh, and that'll be when Jesus returns. That's when the kingdom of God will be completed or consummated is the word the theologians use, which it's a bit of an unusual word, but it really means when Jesus returns, that'll be the climax, that'll be the finish line, that'll be the goal of the whole process of God's kingdom when Jesus returns. He's told them in verse 21 that there's a sense in which God's kingdom is now. Uh, look at how he begins verse 22. He answers the Pharisees' question, but he's talking to the disciples. The time is coming. So he says, the kingdom of God is among you. Then verse 22. The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. In other words, at the moment the kingdom of God is among you, but that won't always be the case. A time is coming when I will be gone. And you will wish that these days were still around. So he's describing that time between his first coming and his second coming. That's the days that we're living in now. And he said, you will long for my earthly presence, but you'll also be looking forward to another day, a final day, the day when I return. And he goes on to describe that in verse 24. So we've got these three periods of time. When the kingdom of God is among them, Jesus' earthly ministry. Two, when they can no longer see the kingdom of God. And then finally when Jesus returns, that'll be the completion of the kingdom of God. So, how will God's kingdom come? What will it look like? Well, Jesus goes on to describe when the kingdom of God comes, what it will be like. Firstly, verse 23, he says the kingdom will come unexpectedly and obviously. Unexpectedly and obviously. Verse 23. Men will tell you, there he is, or here he is, but do not go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. What's lightning like? Well, it comes quickly. It's obvious. When lightning strikes, there's no warning. But when it does strike, everybody sees it. You can see it from a long way away, wherever you are. That's what it will be like when Jesus returns. In contrast to today, when he's not so obvious. Jesus says on that day, everyone will know it. Nobody will miss out. There will be no tricks or secrets, no special knowledge There'll be no chance that some people won't see it and others will notice it. Everyone will see him. But the worldwide unveiling of Jesus' victory, it will only come after his suffering. That's the second piece of the puzzle. Suffering will come before victory. Verse 25. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Before anyone's able to see Jesus as the king in his victory, they will need to see Jesus as the king in his suffering. Now, he's talking about his death on the cross. Now, we'll find out as we keep reading that his suffering, it's not the opposite of victory, it's actually the means of him achieving victory. 
His suffering and death and resurrection is the reason he can stand victorious on the last day, because he fights death and sin and he defeats them. And he's warning his hearers not to give up when they see Jesus suffering. That's not going to be the end. Don't worry when you see me being rejected and suffering. That's not the end. The suffering has to come first before the victory. Well, the third piece of the puzzle is that when the kingdom of God comes, uh, it'll come with judgment and no second chances. Now, that's the point of mentioning Noah and Lot. Uh, Two examples from the Old Testament about God's judgment. And in both cases, God judged and he gave plenty of warning. People were told what was coming, but they didn't take notice. They ignored the warnings. They kept doing what they'd always done. A bit like lots of people today. But when judgment started, when the flood started, or when the city of Lot was being destroyed, it was too late for second chances. Look at verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. In Noah's time, people were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, right up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Same in the days of Lot, when Sodom, the city of Sodom, was destroyed. Verse 28 and 29. Life was normal, right up to the time when it wasn't. And then it was too late. Jesus is saying judgment is coming and once it starts there will be no chance to change your mind. Your decision about how you respond to Jesus has to be made before that day. Now that's a scary thought if you don't belong to Jesus. That's a scary thought for your friends and your neighbours who don't belong to Jesus. As people live their normal life, as they eat and drink, as they buy and sell, their decision about judgment depends on you telling them, you warning them. That day will come with judgment and no second chances. Fourthly, verse 30, there will be rescue, but you need to be single-minded. No half-hearted people will be rescued. Verse 30. It'll be just like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down and get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Jesus is thinking about Noah and Lot again. Imagine there is a huge flood and the waters are rising... You would be crazy to be sitting on the roof of your house and then decide, oh, I should run down and fetch the cat or rescue the photos. No, no, you stay out of harm's way. You either want to be rescued or you don't want to be rescued. Same with Lot. It's no good as you flee the city that's about to be destroyed and you turn back to look at your beloved flowers getting ruined. Don't do that. Just run. You either want to be rescued or you don't. Look at how Jesus puts it in verse 33. 
Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. It seems ridiculous to us, but that's exactly what so many people do today. They know up here that Jesus will return to judge, but they're not serious about that to change their life, to do anything with what they know of Jesus. They don't believe enough to give up the things that they love. They keep keep building this life that they know will end rather than give up their life for rescue, for a life that they don't know. Do you know people like that? Maybe that's you. You know the facts. But it hasn't actually made any difference in your life. Holding on to your money means more than being rescued. Holding on to your independence means more than being rescued. Holding on to your career or your possessions or your plans means more to you than rescue from God's judgment. Be warned. Jesus says no half-hearted people will be rescued. Well, the fifth piece of the puzzle is that the kingdom will come divisively. That's the best word I could come up with. God's kingdom will divide people. There from verse 34, judgment will take one spouse and leave the other. What a horrible situation that would be. One friend and leave the other. One workmate and leave the other. No obvious difference between the two except that one knows Jesus and one doesn't. That's the only criteria that counts. It doesn't matter who you are friends with. It doesn't matter who you are married to. It doesn't matter your intelligence or your income or your language or your privilege. Those allegiances won't count. The only allegiance that matters is whether you know Jesus. But it's more than just knowing those things, isn't it? It's more than theoretical. If if, if you know that Jesus is coming back, it, it should affect how you live today. If Jesus really is coming back, your life should be different. There's no use knowing something will happen if you don't do anything about it. It's no use knowing there's a hailstorm coming this afternoon, but you don't move your car undercover. It's no good knowing that your HSC exams start next week, but you don't study. It's no good knowing, it's no good seeing the empty fuel warning light on your car, but not filling up the petrol tank. If you know that Jesus is coming back, there are at least four ways you should show that from what Jesus says in these verses. The first thing you should do, it's pretty obvious, if the kingdom of God is going to come suddenly and without warning, you need to be ready. We've seen it again and again in the the last few chapters of Luke, haven't we? You need to be ready. Are you friends with Jesus? Have you accepted his offer of rescue? Have you repented and handed your life over to him? Or are you still not sure? What's holding you back? Have you got genuine questions? 
Or are you just unsure about whether it's worth it? Are you too much in love with the things that you're building in this life to be willing to give them up? Whatever the reason, stop putting off the decision. Jesus could come back tomorrow and then it will be too late. But if you do know Jesus, are you ready for his return? How much does the certainty of that day influence the choices you make today? How does that day affect your priorities and how you spend your time and what you do and what you don't do? Are you ready for Christ's return? Well, the second so what is there in verse 25. If Jesus had to suffer before his victory, we should expect to suffer as well. In fact, in other places, Jesus promises uh, that you will suffer. If this is what they do to me, then uh, my followers should expect the same, he says. But just because we suffer as Christians, that doesn't mean he's not king. It doesn't mean he's not coming back just because we are suffering now. Remember, we are living in between the time of his first coming and his second coming. Jesus says in verse 22, the disciples will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. I think he's saying in the days to come, things are going to be difficult. That's the time we are living in now between Jesus' first and second coming. Jesus' kingdom has not fully come yet. God reigns, but it's not obvious. Evil still wins sometimes. God's people still suffer. But Jesus is king. He will come back, even if it doesn't seem like it, even if life is difficult for his people. So keep trusting, keep hoping for his return. The third point, the third so what, is similar. Verse 33, Jesus says, uh, living in the kingdom of God means losing your life for Jesus. What do we mean by losing your life? It means giving up what the world says your life should be about so that you can actually gain true life, that you can actually gain Jesus. What have you given up for the sake of Jesus? What do you count as worthless for the sake of Jesus? Some of you, like Anne, Pierre, Gemma, they're giving up careers to train at Bible college, to then work as missionaries to build God's kingdom. They've given up a lot. Most of us won't do that, but you can give up money to support them. Merrick and Kathy give up time during the week to teach school scripture. Mika, Eleanor, Helsa give up Friday nights to lead youth group. Co is giving up his holidays to go on beach mission in January. Peter and Roz give up their Sundays and Wednesdays to lead Christianity Explored courses. All sorts of other things people are giving up. What are you giving up in your life for the sake of Jesus? Can you cope with being a little busier or a little less comfortable, a little less well-off? Can you be making better use of your savings, your holidays, your evenings? 
losing your life for Jesus so that you can gain it. Well, the fourth practical application, the fourth so what, is there in chapter 18. If we know that God's kingdom is coming, that should affect how we pray. If we know God's kingdom is coming, it should affect how we pray. We should pray expectantly and patiently and steadfastly for God's kingdom to come. Jesus tells a parable about a woman who wants justice. The judge is not interested in her, but but she keeps asking. Day after day and night after night, please bring justice, please bring justice, until he's sick of it. Finally, the judge gives up for the sake of some peace and quiet. He decides to rule in her favour. It's a funny story, isn't it? But Jesus' point is, if that's what an unjust judge does, who's not actually interested in justice at all, how much more will God give us justice when we cry out to him? Now, it may be Jesus is thinking of justice in a a small-scale sense, justice in small issues. But from the context, I think Jesus is talking about the ultimate, the final day of justice, judgment day, the day when all wrongs will be righted, when all the innocent will be vindicated, when all the guilty will (coughs) will be called to account. We should be praying for Jesus to return, for things to be made right. Jesus promises, look there in verse 7 of chapter 18. Will not God bring justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on earth? When Jesus returns, will we be found praying for his return? Will we be found demonstrating our our faith, giving up our lives? Will we be found pleading for justice? Jesus is coming back. Let's be ready. Suffering for our Lord, losing our lives for Jesus, praying for justice praying for his kingdom to come. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done as it is in heaven. We pray, Lord God, that your kingdom would come in our lives and in our world. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.